Hey friends, this is Rick Lee James. I am so glad that you are listening to this podcast today, and I want to ask a favor of you. You know, this podcast is free, and it's always going to be free, but we do have a lot of costs around here. Not only making podcasts, but making new music, paying for production costs, website fees, hosting fees, doing research, marketing, materials, and so much more. And you can help us with that if you visit patreon.com slash James, where for as little as a dollar a month or even a one-time donation, you can help me to continue doing the work that I'm doing. It would mean so much, and it takes such a very little amount of your time. So if you have a chance, go to patreon.com slash James and thank you in advance for any help that you can give. Welcome to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of me, Rick Lee James. I'm a recording artist, a singer, a songwriter, an author, a worship leader, and an ordained minister in the Church of the Nazarene. The Voices in My Head podcast is where I discuss music, movies, books, pop culture, theology, and more with friends, colleagues, and sometimes just by myself. Now make sure to let me know what you think of today's episode by leaving me a review on iTunes or by tweeting at me at Rick Lee James on Twitter. And please join my mailing list at rickleejames.com where you can receive an email every time a new episode is released. And by the way, in case you're interested in a daily dose of kindness and encouragement beyond this podcast, I also run the Twitter account at Mr. Rogers Say, where I post daily quotes from Fred Rogers, one of the voices in my head. Well, I guess that's it for the intro, so sit back, relax, and listen to the latest episode of Voices in My Head. Welcome back to Voices in My Head. As always, I'm your host, Rick Lee James, and I'm so glad that you're here with us for what I know is going to be another great conversation today. Well, the evangelical church in America has reached a cultural crossroads. Social media and recent political events have exposed the fault lines that exist within our country and our spiritual communities. The corruption and blind spots of the evangelical church have led to the departure of so many from faith who cite hypocrisy and partisanship as reasons they can't stay. Chillingly, many of the virtues we believed were a central piece of our religious heritage, including kindness, purity, modesty, hospitality, and faithfulness, have been hijacked and used for political and cultural gain. But all is not lost. My guest today, author Amy Peterson, wants to reimagine virtue as a tool, not as a weapon, as wild, not tame, as embodied, not written, as someone intimately familiar with, fond of, and also deeply critical of the world of conservative evangelicalism, Amy dissects the moral code of American evangelicalism and re-examines what it really means to be faithful in the modern world. Her latest book, Where Goodness Still Grows, traces the virtues from their original meanings and imagines what it could look like for us to embrace and celebrate them. Where Goodness Still Grows is more than a book. It is a thoughtful, poetic, and deeply powerful call to reclaim our faith. And it's a book I deeply needed personally in 2020. Author Amy Peterson, welcome to Voices in My Head. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. 
Well, I am really glad uh, to be able to just have a few minutes today to have a podcast visit with you. Your book is so well written, and I hope that it will be a help to many people today. I wonder if, as we start the show, if you could just describe to our listeners a bit of your background and maybe some of the ways that that books like The Book of Virtues by Bill Bennett uh, played a part in uh, writing your newest book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I grew up kind of evangelical of the evangelicals. I grew up in the South in pretty conservative evangelical churches. Um, I was homeschooled until fifth grade, and we were at church and Awana several times a week. And it was really um, a really happy and rich childhood for me. Um, My parents were very involved at church, and my dad was also involved in Christian radio. And so um, my whole world was kind of immersed in this uh, Christian subculture. Um, And, you know, I, some people get the wrong idea when I say that I was homeschooled or grew up conservative evangelical. It wasn't that we didn't interact with outside ideas or voices, but it it was that we had this sense um, that the Bible was preeminent, and we while we weren't particularly conservative, I did have the sense growing up that the Republican Party was the party that cared about the things we cared about: okay. family values, pro life values, and that Democrats generally couldn't be trusted and weren't Christian. Gotcha. Um, so Very the book of virtues, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the book of virtues is a collection of short stories and fables and poems that was edited by Bill Bennett, who was a um, prominent conservative figure in the nineties and it was a book that did you have it in your house growing up i i don't remember if we actually had it in our house i know i had seen it a number of times and it could have been that my dad is a, was a pastor my whole life and so mm-hmm. i may have seen it in his study but i'm i'm familiar with seeing it somewhere but i don't remember it being sort of the central place more like you describe in your home as being one that was like read as a family together but i but i i know i came across it at some point in my life and in my childhood yeah, a lot of times people who grew up like us won't recognize the name, but then if you do a Google image search and look at the cover, you go, oh, yeah, that book, because <laughs> it was just on every family's coffee table sure. for for a period of years there. And um, in the book, Bill Bennett sort of divides these stories and fables and poems into chapters based on virtues like uh, modesty or honesty or faithfulness. And there's a lot of great great stuff in there. And so I think as I've grown up, I mean, this is maybe jumping ahead a little bit, but growing up from there, I started to see that the Republican Party was not holding fast to some of those virtues that I had associated with it in my childhood, um, was not really holding on to the virtues that Bill Bennett names in the Book of Virtues. Mm. So I kind of dealing with this like... uh, cognitive dissonance of like the people who I grew up with taught me about these virtues. And now I'm seeing a lot of people sort of 
not caring about the virtues anymore. So I went back to the book of virtues to look at it and try to figure out what went wrong. Like, did I miss something? Mm. (laughs) And the thing that I, well, I mean, one of the main things I, I learned was that Bill Bennett said that he edited that volume because he had conversations with school teachers in Chicago about how their students needed a resource for character formation. Hmm. Now, he was talking to uh, teachers whose student population was pretty diverse, pretty under-resourced, not primarily white middle-class kids. But when he went to put together this volume to be a resource for them, he chose almost all white male European voices Hmm. almost as if, um, and I mean, I think that there are some truths that can transcend culture and context and be valuable. Um, but I think that if you limit the voices you're listening to about virtue to voices who, um, maybe just come out of one stream of tradition or culture or context, you're really limiting how well you're going to be understand you're going to be able to understand what virtue is. And, and I think that that's kind of a clue for me of what maybe has been going wrong in evangelicalism in the past few years, as we've um, started to care about some things like power, maintaining our own safety and security, uh, wealth more than we care about loving our neighbors. Yeah. I've probably just jumped way ahead. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> but... it's all right. It's it's all good. And and just to kind of kind of bring a, around what you were saying a little bit, because you write about in the book, sort of talking about um, the end of a world and kind of the start of a new world for you, kind of having to break free in some ways of some of the old ways of looking at things, partially because of the way that these virtues, as you just described, often were uh, kind of myopic in some ways. They were written from uh, very few other perspectives than just this one. And uh, and you even write about in the book how, in many ways, it was sort of a weaponized version of the virtues that was used to uphold existing hierarchies. And, um, and I, I thought that was very interesting. And so coming to your book, um, finding that, as, as you call it, it's kind of your book is a... Uh, a record of both the lament and the new life, and I really liked mm-hmm. the way that you you put those things. And you start talking about in your book um, virtues that that we need to to dive into, and you do a wonderful job of maybe dealing with some misconceptions of of what we thought these virtues were about in the book. And I just found page after page going. Yes, you you are so well putting into words things that I'm feeling in my heart, ways that I'm trying to describe the discomfort uh, that I'm feeling. And, and I really felt like it was a very timely thing for me to find and probably for a lot of other people to find too. Um, and so your book, you have said, is not a definitive answer about the virtues, um, but it's a book hopefully intended to spark some discussions about what virtues look like in our own context. And so I wonder, what are some of the the conversations that you hope this book will help us to have with each other? Mm. I just feel so deeply concerned about the church right now. It seems like we're really unable to have a lot of conversations um, without falling into name-calling and um, 
we're really having a hard time agreeing on like what truth even is, what sources we can trust for truth. Um, But, but I believe that God reveals truth to us within community. And so that's part of my hope with this book is that people can use it to sort of cultivate conversations within community. Because I think you're exactly right. This isn't, this book isn't trying to be here are the final answers about what virtues are and how we live into them. It's more like, here's me sifting through what I once understood about virtue and Mm -hmm. figuring out where was there beauty and truth in that? And where was it maybe falling short? Where's there something that I can let go of now and build something uh, a little, a little better. And all of that will depend on exactly where you are and who you're with um, and all these sort of contextual questions. But mm. so I guess what conversations do I hope people are having? I hope that this book helps people talk about how do we know what's true? Mm. I hope it helps people talk about um, sexual ethics. Mm-hmm. And I think you mentioned that I, I say some of these virtues have been weaponized, I think, particularly against women. Um, our interpretations of the virtues of purity and modesty have been weaponized against women. And I hope that um, we can begin to talk about some healthier, uh, more God honoring ways for us to be in relationship with each other. Sure. Um, well, yeah, I just I hope we start talking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the, the hardest thing that I've experienced right now. Anyways, I'm finding that even raising questions um, is a way to quickly get shouted down. Uh, and and I'm and I'm I lament that and, and maybe lament is a good place to start because mm. it's chapter one of your book. Uh, but I do think it's important that we begin having some of these conversations we're not having very well. Um, and I wonder if, you know, part of it is the fact that right now especially we are literally a people who are not um are not together you know <laughs> we are literally mm. at a place in our country where like pandemic is running wild i just heard the projection this morning that they think by january we'll have 400,000 people probably dead because of the coronavirus yeah. and so i think more and more as like the winter months come on we're going to find ourselves more and more um, separated from each other and so a lot of the conversations that we're having uh, are through things like social media which have just become so incredibly toxic and and hard yeah. to have a conversation so and you throw into that right now um, that we are in an election year with I, what is it I think something like 60 days or something like that to go before this election and it just seems like conversations are are very rarely actually had there's a lot of yelling going on and a lot of shouting and if you ask a question you get called a heretic you know Mm -hmm. and and it's it's just a really hard environment so so let's dive in a little bit and maybe depending on time we'll try to get to as many virtues as we can that you wrote about but you did such a good job in raising some good questions for us to think about so let's start with lament if that's all right with you Um, sure because because you start right out in chapter one talking about uh, recapturing lament and I, i wonder if you could answer for us maybe how lament is different from grief Mm. yeah the lament is the practice of um, grieving what is wrong in the world and calling on God to repair it. Mm, okay. And and so it's more than just feeling sad, but it's also taking that sadness to God and 
asking God to fix what is broken. Mm-hmm. And I think lament is something we practice um, in for, for like a number of kind of griefs. So like there's the grief of um, your own personal sin, and you can lament that. Mm-hmm. There's the grief uh, that's born of living in a world that's broken and where there are systems that lead to a lot of pain and suffering for a lot of people. And you may not be, uh, that may not be something you're directly responsible for, but you can still lament it. Mm -hmm. And then you can even lament the things that you're not directly responsible for or indirectly responsible for the things that are just the result of living in a fallen world. Um, you can lament those things too. Mm. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting. Does that help the starting place for thinking about what lament is? Yes, I think so. And and I, I especially love the way that you described it as sort of grieving the brokenness of the world and calling on God to fix it. Um, I, I, and I may have misquoted you a little bit, but I think that was sort of the gist. Um, and really, that's what we see in something like the book of Psalms. And, like, you know, mm-hmm. for, at least 40% of the Psalms are these laments that are crying out to God, look how broken everything is, Lord. Look how much pain I'm in. Look at our people. And how long, O oh Lord, until you're going to come to fix this? And so I, I think that's a, a good way. It's It's almost like naming the grief and then praying for God to do something about it. I, I find that to be very important right now because I've said a number of times with a number of guests on this program, I think what we're experiencing in our nation right now is grief, and we don't know how to name it as mm-hmm. such. And um, because we are in grief, people don't realize that often what we're going through and what we're feeling are these different stages of grief, um, often like when we lose a family member, but we're actually grieving things that are more difficult to put our finger on, like we're we're week after week experiencing, well, this year, um, you know, my child didn't get to have a birthday party with friends, yeah. um, or we didn't get to have, who knows, maybe it's going to be Christmas this year. Grandma and Grandpa didn't get to mm. come over. Um, we, we didn't get to finish school and, and graduate this year the way we wanted to. Um, you know, college is in question. Am I going to get to go to quest- college? Um, and just a number of things. So I, I, I think it's it's very wise of you to start your book in that way uh, with lament as sort of a way of crying out here here is what we're experiencing that we're naming it and we're finding a way to cry out to God in the midst of it as we seek some sort of healing in the midst of our grief so, and, and yeah kind of kind of getting the idea of what you were going for I think yeah absolutely and I think the church has often not done a good job of helping us know how to lament because mm-hmm. um, instead we hear so often like rejoice in all things this yeah. is the day that the Lord has made <laughs> rejoice and be glad in it and it, that is scripture too but I love that you pointed to the Psalms and I also love to look at the book of Lamentations mm-hmm. um, in fact talking about like the things we're grieving right now with our kids reminded me of something I did with my kids recently. You know, the book of Lamentations is a book of poems and the poems in the Hebrew are acrostic poems. So like the first verse begins with A and the second verse with B and then C and so on. And early in the pandemic when I realized how many things like birthday parties and Easter dinners were being canceled and I was feeling like I don't know what to do with my own feelings about this. Um, I got my kids and we just wrote the alphabet down the side of a piece of paper 
And I said, okay, we're going to make an acrostic of our grief. Let's start with A and name some things we're sad about right now with A. And they said, all the kids who need school lunches and don't have them anymore because school's closed. Wow. And and we just went through the alphabet, and it was such a, a meaningful way to really practice this discipline of lament mm. and let ourselves feel the real grief and then to call on God to repair it. Yeah. Um, it's a good practice to do with your family, but also um, for anybody who's listening and just is looking for some way to try to figure out how to deal with this grief, I really recommend write your own acrostic of grief as a prayer to God. Yeah. Uh, that's a that's a great idea. I, I had never thought about that before until you suggested it, and I, I do think it's it's a very good thing. It might be the kind of thing that um, you know Sunday school classes or groups that mm-hmm. meet, that are meeting even at a distance now on Zoom or something. They might decide, hey, you know what? This week we've we've missed a lot, and let's let's listen to each other and kind of hear each other. In, in what it is that we've lost, but su- such a great idea. And so, so we're starting this journey with lament, which is which is so needed. And um, you're you're right. I, I feel like so often we've done a, a poor job of helping people have the permission to lament and come in. And um, we actually had a, a person in our church. I, I haven't heard her do it very much anymore. But it seemed like every time somebody would pass away in our church, a family member or something. Uh, this person would come up to them at church and like the Sunday after you know the funeral and say, "Praise God, they're with Jesus. Let's rejoice together." You know, oh, type thing. And yeah. And then this person's spouse died, and mm. and then I stopped noticing this person doing <laughs> that so much to other people. You know, and there's a sense in which we're so bad about getting through the the uncomfortable places, and yet it's so necessary for us. So. Anyway, I'm, I've talked yeah. long enough. We need to get back uh, to your book, but it's it's really good and it's a great place to start, I think. And and, and you go from there into um, chapter two, dealing with kindness, and uh, and I and I love uh, talking about kindness for a lot of different reasons. Partially because um, I, I also run this uh, fairly popular Twitter account and podcast about Mister Rogers, and mm. uh, and I, there's a lot of kindness that I see people longing for day after day and and uh, they're they're drawn to the quotes of people like fred rogers who really embodied kindness and one of my favorite theologians uh, ethicist uh, stanley harwas from duke um he even says in his writings he says i believe that kindness to he says i believe kindness to be the very character of god and um so i love that you have a chapter that is about kindness and so in chapter two you deal with kindness and you make the case that there are times um, when calls for civility or kindness are actually attempts to silence people and in effect gloss over real problems so i wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about this because we are in a place that we're desperate for kindness um, but how are some ways that you've actually seen kindness become this attempt to silence people or to gloss over real problems that need to be dealt with Yeah, I mean, I will say that for most of my life, kindness is a virtue that I was uninterested in (laughs) because (laughs) um, kindness seemed like a really bland virtue. I 
thought of it as the virtue of being a doormat. (laughs) And um, I think particularly women are socialized to be kind in a way that is just sort of to be nice, tamp down your opinions, don't cause trouble, don't, you know, be divisive. And that's actually not uh, a very good understanding of what kindness is. Um, The word kindness, if you look at its etymology, it's related to kinship. And so to be kind is to recognize your kinship with others. And that doesn't mean that you ignore the differences or that you ignore um, the injustices that others are perpetrating. But it does mean that you work to see the image of God in every person you interact with. Hmm. And when scripture talks about um, the kindness of God, what we ought to understand from that is that God became our kin in Jesus. And so our whole redemption is only possible through our kind Lord, God becoming kin with us through Jesus so that we can become like God. And I think once we recognize that and use that as our foundation of under of self-understanding mm-hmm. um and of spiritual understanding it helps us begin to um begin that work of seeing seeing the image of god in every person whether we like them or not agree with them or not and letting that be the foundation of our relationships with others and of the way that we see others that doesn't that's not a call for us to just ignore the differences or the injustices, but it is a call for us to, I think, respect and um, I'm sorry, you cut out for about the last four seconds there. You said respect, and I didn't hear the last part. I wonder if you'd be able to say that again. Sentences. Um, you know, again, that's not a call for us. Um. Amy, are you problems are, are making trouble? Amy, are you? Can you, you not able hear to, me anymore? I'm sorry, you you cut in and out a couple of times, and I wasn't able to to hear you had said something about um, respect, and then I lost you, and then you came back in. Um, are are you still there? Yeah, can you hear me now? I can now. It just said poor connection. It seems like you're back again, though. So I apologize about that. It's probably my fault. My internet, we're, we're switching to fiber internet next week, but uh, it's I, been having some I, trouble. I totally get that. No, that's okay. Uh, yeah. What what you said was great. We only missed a few seconds of it in there, so uh, but but <laughs> but we will we will move on um, to another virtue because I want to be conscious of our of our time together. But I appreciated what you had to say about kindness in the book and kinship and the way that uh, not even just people. You also talk about um, things that are yeah. not people that we find kinship with, and I, I found it to be fascinating. Um, but but I do want to get into a couple of other ones uh, just for the sake of time. Um, you go from kindness into hospitality, and um, how do you define hospitality, and what are some of the connections that you see between kindness, which we were just talking about, and hospitality itself? I think that these two virtues are deeply related. Um if kindness means recognizing your kinship with all other creatures, uh, hospitality means extending welcome to all creatures 
just as you would to your own kin, to your own family. And this has been an especially difficult, um, an especially difficult virtue for me to sort of reconcile with um, what I see among so many evangelicals right now who want to close the borders, who don't want to take in refugees. And that's not all. I mean, some evangelicals are doing great work. There's the evangelical immigration table, Matt Sorens. They're doing fantastic work advocating for immigrants and refugees. But, um, but I think if we look in scripture, we see that in the Old Testament, for instance, when God's giving law to God's people, love for the stranger and love for your neighbor were for God's people commands on equal footing. And there were specific laws to ensure that Israel wouldn't treat aliens or outsiders unfairly. Hmm. Um, in fact, the command to care for the stranger is repeated 36 times in the Torah, which is more even than the command to love God. Wow. Yeah. That's a, so I, hospitality is essential to our understanding of ourselves and our calling, I think. Yeah. And and it's that's been one that's been really hard to reconcile over the past few years for me, um, being that we're uh, in the evangelical community that holds so tightly to being pro-life, and mm. and I've often thought about the irony of people who constantly are screaming about babies being ripped from their mothers, um, and how evil that is in the womb, but seem to be the ones that are championing. Uh, children and babies being ripped from their mothers at the border and separated. And then now we know that's turned into also a lot of child abuse. Um, there's been a, a number of recorded abuse situations um, that have happened yeah. to these children, which which is just heartbreaking to me. Um, and, I, and I've often wondered, I've even had conversations with people before, whereas a couple of summers ago um, was when it really heated up, at least in the media, and we were seeing mm. um, all of it really enacted before our eyes, and we were seeing on camera what it meant. And a number of churches, including my own denomination that I've been a part of my whole life, the Church of the Nazarene, um, the leadership uh, of, of churches and the Methodist Church and, and different uh, mainline churches, they got together and condemned this, you know, and said, you know, we don't yeah. do this. And people within my church and ministers in my church, I had conversations with them. And uh, and they said, no, we're with Trump on this. And I said, why would you go against not only what the Bible says, but your own denomination that you're a pastor in says, <laughs> says no, we can yeah. do this. And I was still getting answers from them saying, no, Trump's right. And I just could not, I still can't fathom it. I can't reconcile it. I don't think there's anything holy or godly about it. Um, and, I, and I was so glad to see you writing about it in that way, that there really is this connection of caring for the strangers that is so dear and very near to the heart of God that we actually mm -hmm. see this as part of our um Part of our discipleship, you know, uh, is 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 loving our neighbors this way, and uh, and caring especially for refugees. And I, I put out a, a music video a couple of years ago, and it had a lot of footage that one of my friends brought back who works uh, with refugees, uh, both in and out of the country. And um, when I released the video, which really was just showing pictures of children and a lot of people who were like living in train stations and people who were without homes. 
I kept getting these nasty comments on the videos mm. saying, you know, better keep them out of our country. We don't want them here. And those were the Christians. <laughs> and I thought... But it's heartbreaking. Yeah. How do, like, we, how how do, do we stay do in our it? Christian communities when that <laughs> when exactly. that's happening? You know, I mean, that's not Christianity. That's Christian nationalism. Yeah. And I think that's one of our biggest problems right now is that Christian nationalism has infiltrated our churches. And so even when, yes, denominational leaders and, you know, national leaders uh, can, can stand behind immigrants and refugees, people at the, at the local level have fallen prey to this Christian nationalism, yeah. um, that's causing them to identify more with a political party or leader or to pledge allegiance to the U.S. and not to Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's heartbreaking and it's mind boggling. And I, I've had a number of conversations and, and I've, I've never, been able to get anywhere on it it seems like if a person believes something they believe it um so it's so it's a hard conversation to continually have day after day but uh it's one that i feel like is is very important there's a real disconnect between our discipleship because i i feel like we have maybe been more discipled by our favorite 24-hour news network than we have actually been mm -hmm. discipled by christ and his church and that's a real mm -hmm. a real hard thing uh, well, you know, there, there's another area of interest, and I, and I think that a lot of this call to hospitality, um, you know, is a call to repentance in many ways. You know, we have to look at the ways that we have not only not loved God with our whole heart, but we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And um, and and so you're writing about in many ways a call to repentance and a, and a call to shift. But that leads right into your next chapter, which is a chapter about purity. And uh, and really, you you talk about purity culture, and I found this especially interesting because, as you point out, purity in the Bible has nothing or an incredibly small amount to nothing <laughs> to do with <laughs> sex. Um, and so, I wonder if if for those of us who were raised in sort of this idea of purity culture and the way it was connected um, with sex and and a, a number of different ways that that incarnated over the years, what is your idea of the biblical understanding of purity connected with? Mm. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Scripture barely connects the word purity to sex. I mean, the vast majority of references in the Bible to purity are in the Old Testament, and they mostly have to do with the precious metals that were used in temple construction or with the incense in the temple or with rituals for staying clean and presenting yourself holy before God. Um Throughout the Bible, the word purity is often used as a synonym for righteousness or in calls to holiness. Hmm. And while I do think sexual ethics definitely plays some role in our understanding of what righteous and holy living is, mm -hmm. in the Bible, the word purity just really isn't primarily about sex. Right. So it's a strange choice of a word, but um, so people will need to really get the book to get the whole argument here because sure. I do sort of look at why choosing that word is problematic. Um, but but you want to know what I think a biblical definition of purity is. Mm -hmm. I think in the Bible, it has to do with righteousness and holiness. Mm. And I think in the Bible, we also see pretty clearly that righteousness and holiness are gifts to us, gifts of grace from Jesus, not something we can attain through our own works, right? Right. 
And so part of the problem with purity culture is that it's asking you particularly to think of yourself as pure by following a set of rules. Hmm. And in the Bible, purity is not something you can attain by following a set of rules. It is just a gift to you from God. Um, so, so when I think about purity now or how I would talk about that with my own kids, I would want to say something about, um, when you're close to Jesus, you are pure, Hmm. no matter what you've done or, or what you haven't done. Um, purity means embracing your unity with Christ and in that unity, finding that you're free to open fearlessly to others in ways that are safe and healthy and truly loving in ways that draw others into that fellowship with Christ too. Mm -hmm. Uh, Did, did I lose you? I, I yes. Sorry, I, you cut out again for a second. I heard purity Dang. in Christ. I think we got the full. <laughs> I think we got the fullness of what you were saying about it. But I love that definition of purity being having to do with your relationship with Christ and your nearness to Christ and the way that Christ makes you pure, rather than a set of rules um, uh, that that if you violate, you're not pure anymore. Uh, type thing. Um, so. What's so interesting to me about that, and and I'm I'm especially interested in this topic because I'm a father, and mm-hmm. um and I have a son who I know I'll be you know having some um probably awkward conversations with you know in the next few years he's he's seven years old right now, yeah. and uh, and I always think like I I want to I want to do right by him and I want to I want to present Jesus to him in all matters. Um, and yet, what so often purity culture, as we would call it uh, in the church, produced, um, actually produced a lot of guilt, a lot of shame, a lot of fear um, to even uh, to even ask questions in a healthy way. I think at mm-hmm. times. So, so let me ask you this question, if I could, while I have you here, because we've talked about how purity in scripture. Um, it really doesn't have a lot to do with sex. It has a lot um, more to do with our relation to God um, and, and our relation to Him. How do you recommend, because you have some good suggestions in the book, but how do you recommend talking to children about sex? Um, and, and while we're on that topic, I, just to flow into it, because the next chapter is about modesty, <laughs> um, kind of using some of the, the principles, like what are your suggestions as a parent for, for maybe approaching this in a way that, that maybe wasn't approached through what we would call purity culture? Sure. Well, I think that when kids are really young, especially, it's important to use anatomically correct language when you're talking to them. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're talking about bodies, just make body talk a natural part of conversations, and then you can discuss without shame or embarrassment, answer questions honestly and directly. Um, and then I think it's also important to teach your kids that their bodies are their own. No one can touch their bodies without their permission. And so I take that very seriously. So even if I'm playing around and tickling my kids, if they say stop, I stop. Uh-huh. Because I want to go ahead and get that in their mind. That if someone says stop, you stop touching them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that that kind of talk about agency and consent isn't enough it's really important but on its own it's still kind of reductive because 
sex is about more than agency. I mean, it's, it's unpredictable and powerful. And mm-hmm. in some mysterious way, marriage images the relationship between Christ and the church. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think those are good starting points. I think there needs to be more than that. And, um, I think that's a whole nother book. Yeah. Oh, sure. <laughs> um, I do. I can recommend. I haven't read this yet, but my friend Rachel Joy Welcher has a book coming out. I think this month, um, called "Talking Back to Purity Culture," hmm. and I, I think it deals like more in depth with some of those questions that you're asking. So people sure. might want to take a look at that. Great. All right. Well, I'm making a note of it right now because I want to have a look at that for sure. Uh, Talking Back to Purity Culture. It sounds like another very interesting book for sure. And and thank you for taking some time to talk about that. Um, And and this leads us into modesty because you do a great job in in the book of talking about modesty. As you know, you were always kind of taught and and I think most people um, were taught in, in a similar culture that modesty was really more about not being too revealing with the way you dress you know and, right and yet and yet you'd write about you know biblically speaking again if we're going to get the word for what it means modesty has a lot to do with our for instance our talents our gifts um and our wealth would you mind talking just a bit about that as well this virtue of modesty and and ways that we could talk about it better yeah of course um you know it's kind of funny that Women, girls, we hear a lot about the way we dress as we're growing up and how we should dress modestly to protect our brothers. But, you know, Jesus, when he dealt with the issue of male lust, his solution was not about how women dress. It was gouge out your eyes. (laughs) So just going to throw that out there to start with. (laughs) Doesn't seem like a great solution, but let's... (laughs) yeah, I, I, in the in the book, I look at a couple of scripture passages in particular that are often used when we talk about modesty. And what I find is that um, in context, the word modesty in these passages has a lot more to do with being modest about your wealth and your power hmm. um, than than being specifically related to your body. Now, I think beauty is a kind of power. Mm -hmm. And so it's not totally unrelated to your body and the way you dress. But that's not the the primary understanding. And in fact, I think what Scripture is calling us to is something quite a bit more difficult, because Scripture is calling us to be modest with our power and our wealth. Mm -hmm. And um, in America, we are very wealthy people. Um, and you know, sometimes we can let our wealth keep us separate from those people in our society who don't have, have the same sort of standard of living as we do. We let it become a barrier. Hmm. And so the biblical call to modesty is about inviting us to, make sure we're taking down every barrier that might separate us from our kin, from other people, um, or that might make it uh, more difficult for them to feel comfortable at church, comfortable seeking God. Hmm. Um, 
Go ahead. No, that's that's great, and I, I think it's good for us to to rethink what we mean by modesty, to rethink about uh, the way that we live and the way that we use our talents, and and it gets back again to hospitality, I think, in some ways, and and kindness, absolutely, and, and, yeah, and all these things. It's not like it's sort of like the fruit of the spirit when we're talking about these virtues, because um, you know the fruit of the spirit that we read about in scripture that Jesus talks about, and the, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, uh, goodness, faithfulness gentleness self-control that's all supposed to be one fruit together and and these virtues you're talking about um they do all all kind of weave together as a part of a whole and uh, mm-hmm. and i think that when we talk about this idea of modesty um we have to approach it from kindness and hospitality and, and some of the other great virtues that you've written about that need to be recaptured um i i, I want to be conscious of our time together today and there's so much more and i, I want to make a plea for people listening to check out the book where goodness still grows reclaiming virtue in an age of hypocrisy by my guest today amy peterson it's a really great book um i, I wanted to hone in if we could just for the last couple of minutes that we have together today because if i could i'd talk to you about your book all day long and go to every <laughs> facet about it because there's just so much good in it and and i'm i'm really proud of the work that you have done here i'm proud of you and the way that you've presented it but i want to get into to specifically love motivated um evangelism and mm. and and the idea really which leads into the next thing when we're talking about um discernment these these ideas of of uh they're very interrelated in that so often you grew up i think like i grew up in many ways after reading about what you wrote feeling like our our love for another person almost was driven by our desire to evangelize them you know yeah yeah <laughs> and, and like yes i want to love them and be kind to them and be hospitable so that i can finally get to a place where i can introduce them to jesus and make them uh, a christian and yeah. you write about in the book the idea really should be i'm going to love this person because jesus wants us to love people <laughs> <laughs> because because we are just supposed to love them and it doesn't matter if they change it doesn't matter if they um, yeah. share our views or or whatever it's because we have been called to be people of love and um part of the reason i think that this intersects so well with what you write about in the chapter following about love with the virtue of discernment is because you you talk some about um Jewish midrash in that mm. section and this approach of of coming to the Bible is something to be wrestled with and mm-hmm. something to be even disagreed with and and to really um, almost like Jacob wrestling God you know this idea that we come to the word to wrestle with it and to work out what it means to be people of faith to be in salvation together and I think that all gets back to the way that we live like loving people not as a commodity and and not as a way to like have another check mark in our book but if we're really going to get serious about the way we approach scripture um we're going to find that all these things are interconnected it's not that we love people so that we can make them like us we love them because that's an outgrowth of what it means to be one who has been so changed by love uh and by the love of god um Anyway, I've talked too much about it, and I want to hear hear your thoughts about it. But this idea of of loving a person for the sake of loving them versus loving them for the sake of 
getting them to make a decision. What, what, what can you talk to us about on that on that topic and some of the ways that your views have changed over the years? Yeah, well, I definitely remember um, growing up, there was a lot of apologetics. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the way that I was trained to interact with people who weren't Christians was sort of defensive and fear-based. Um, get, get to know people who aren't Christians, but not because you need friends, just because you might have a chance to convince them that mm-hmm. Jesus is the way, right? Right. And I remember in college, I mean, college was really, I went to, um, I was homeschooled, then I went to Christian high school, and college was the first time that I really had a chance to actually meet people who weren't Christians. And I found that I barely knew how to interact with them because always in the back of my mind I was thinking, uh, I wonder how I could get Jesus into this conversation mm. <laughs> so that I could win this person over. Right. And, you know, that's treating a person like an object or, mm. or like a, something to check off of your list, not treating a person as a person. Mm. And so, yeah, I thought that that was the most loving way to interact with people because I thought, um, you know, the, the thing that matters most is getting people into heaven. If I can save them from an eternity in hell, then that's the most loving thing I can do for them. But you have to treat people as people, mm-hmm. um, not objects on your conversion checklist. And so the way I've started to think a little more about how is how do I love my neighbor, um, I think that loving your neighbor has to do with curiosity, being curious about them, like mm-hmm. genuinely curious, not asking a question to hope that you can get them into a conversation where you can share the gospel, but just genuine curiosity about them, wanting to learn about them. Mm -hmm. I think um, loving your neighbor is about being willing to be a witness to their pain, Mm -hmm. um, to, to sit with them in their pain. And I think, you know, one thing that's helped me a lot is becoming a mother and experiencing the love of a mother. Um, That kind of love begins with vulnerability, with being unprotected and um, really lays down its life. It's about being more committed to the thriving of other bodies than the thriving of your own body in, in some ways. So I think curiosity and um, presence and vulnerability are really at the heart of what neighbor love means. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, it's, that's such a great way to say it. And And again, getting back to the idea of of discerning and when it comes to like scripture yeah. isn't it an interesting thing i'm i'm finding more all the time as i have friendships with people who are not part of my faith um that that they they ask me questions about things that i'm wrestling with too like when it comes yeah. when it comes to scripture so it's not necessarily that you we never have these opportunities to share our faith but i think part of sharing our faith is to come at it with enough humility to say you know what this is something I'm wrestling with too, and I don't want to present like I have every answer. In, in fact, I'd rather come to our relationship more like the better that I know you and love you, the more that I get to know who God is because of that. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. And, 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 and my, how different from the way we were raised to like think, no, we, we need to have a logical answer for every question anyone has. Yes, exactly. And, and it, this came up the other night, and I'm, I, I'm – 
I'm actually not saying this to brag on myself. I feel like it was a it was a Holy Spirit moment with my son the other night at bedtime uh, because we we were talking to him and I try to remind him every night that we love him, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and and at this point at seven, you know, he's got about as much interest in faith as most seven year olds do, you know. <laughs> the mm-hmm. idea of um, and I I said to him, you know, I I love you and your mommy loves you and and but you know who loves you just as much and even more than we do is God. And he looked at me and he said very timidly, he said, I love mommy more than I love God, I think. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and in his mind, he was being very honest. He wasn't being like, right. uh, and so, you know, the worst reaction would have probably been, well, you blasphemous. No, you know, like, whatever. how dare you? And what right. came, what came to my mind was to say, well, you, did you know that the way that you love mommy is, is a way that you're also loving God. Like it's, mm. it's, it's not an either or type thing. And I think it's the way that you, you do such a good job of presenting this in the book that the way that we love others, it really does help us to understand who God is because God has created us all for one thing. So if we can stop looking at people and as you said, objectifying them yeah. um, into this thing that needs to be changed for if for no other reason, another notch in our spiritual belt or something, yeah. um, we actually can find that there are some really wonderful things that people who are not necessarily the most faithful to what we would call faith um, can teach us about who God is. And so I really appreciate the way that you bring that out um, in your book. And boy, what some what wonderful and robust relationships we will miss out on if our only goal is to evangelize people yeah. into our way of thinking, for sure. Yeah. Um, well, you've you've given so much to think about in your book. I want to thank you for um, coming on and, and talking a bit today. Um, and I apologize. I feel like I've talked too much, but what you write about gets me excited, and I <laughs> I feel like I don't always <laughs> no, have a chance no, no. to. No, no, I love a good conversation. <laughs> I, I don't want to be the main voice. Well, I want to one more time just remind our listeners about your book. Uh, the name of it is it's called Where Goodness Still Grows. Um, I have so many pages of the book dog-eared. It would have been easier if I if I just would have um, not underlined uh, <laughs> places that I you know. They, they, I could have just like underlined the places I didn't want to go back to. It would have been much easier than, you know, I, I did so much underlining and, and bookmarking and things like that. It really has a lot of us, uh, a lot of things for us to digest. And uh, I hope that a lot of people will pick this up if they haven't yet. And I also wanted to make them aware that you've provided a very good uh, free study guide online to go along with this. That yes. from, from what I understand in reading about it, it was... Um, a study guy that you came up with working it out in a community of people who kind of went through the book together. So that adds to the communal aspect. Um, So I want people to be able to go there. We are going to have links to your website, links to the book, links to uh, everything social media about you um, on our homepage at voicesinmyheadpodcast.com. One more time really quick. I I forgot to write it down, but what is the the address of your website specifically, Amy? Oh, yeah. It's just amypeterson.net. amypeterson.net. Again, we will make sure and have all of that information in the show notes, but please go to amypeterson.net where you can find out uh, more about not just this book but some of the other wonderful things that Amy is doing and is a part of and is continuing to write. Uh, So Amy Peterson, it's been a real joy. Thank you for being one of the voices in my head this week. Thanks for having me on. It was fun.
Thank you for joining me here this week on Voices in My Head. I hope you'll visit me on my website at rickleejames.com where you can find out more about me, get my music on vinyl and CD, follow my blog, and even schedule me for a concert or a speaking engagement. Better yet, even a book signing in your neighborhood. You can find all that and more at rickleejames.com. Also, it would mean a great deal to me if you could write a review of this podcast on iTunes. The more positive reviews that we receive, the more visible this podcast will be online. And now, for the benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. God bless you, and thank you for listening to Voices in My Head.